Thanks for tuning in to this message from Greenhouse Church. We are continuing our series on the movement. Listen now as Pastor Mike continues his teaching on the book of Acts. We've been in this series called The Movement. Now, uh, we picked up on this series back in January is where we started and it was called The Great Awakening. And it was with this idea, um, kind of launching out of Acts 1-8 where Jesus gets together with the disciples and he says, hey, you're gonna receive power from on high. Go and be my witnesses. And then we see this moment transitions from Acts 1-8 to Acts 2, where 120 believers are gathered together. They're worshiping. They're waiting on God's instructions. And next thing you know, fire from heaven comes. They're all filled with the Holy Spirit. Peter stands up. He preaches the gospel. 3,000 get saved and are baptized. You start to see the formation of the early church as these believers trying to figure this thing out. They were devoting themselves to the apostles, teaching the breaking of bread to fellowship and to prayer. And God said it in that moment, or at least Luke is describing this moment. He's like, and, and as they gathered, the numbers still increase. You see in Acts chapter four, where they were living life together in such a way where Luke says that what they had was not their own. And um, in Acts chapter 5 and 6, you start seeing persecution start breaking out. And the, the religious leaders, the Sanhedrin, they're really mad because this thing is just having momentum. Because in most uh, kind of like in most movements, once you kill the head of the leader, the movement dies. And yet this movement, this head person, he dies and the movement continues to thrive. And so they're mad, like big mad. And they get so mad that they want to arrest them. But God's such a boss that he frees them. And all throughout Acts, you see this story of God's faithfulness. People are healed, set free, delivered. Does anyone want that here and now? Say amen. Amen. I want to catch you up because this has been like the story of the movement. We see a little later where they start working together. These are where like the first servants or deacons kind of come to play. Stephen is one of these people that come to play. Stephen, full of faith, full of the Holy Spirit, ends up preaching this message and he pays the cost for it which is a great reminder for us because I think a lot of times we feel like um, if we follow Jesus, everything is going to be, uh, you know, easy. It's going to be rainbows and unicorns. But here's the principle for us to understand is that if you belong to Jesus, if you and I, we decide to be the hands and feet of God, you can expect persecution. If you and I who are called by God decide to be the hands and feet of God, there is expectation that persecution is coming. But here's the cool thing, even with the reality of the early church, when they were poked with persecution, they bled out the goodness of God, which means even when they were scattered, the gospel still went forth. This is the movement. See, it's easy to have an awakening. It's easy to go to a, a camp for, for, you know, youth camp and, and have a great experience in that way. But it's another thing to really have a move of God. What we're going to look at today in Acts chapter 9 is... We're going to study this guy named Saul, and this guy named Saul is the chief persecutor. He's like the, the chief antagonist of the church, at least in this moment. And mostly you guys have probably heard of this story. You know that Saul goes to Paul, and you got this Pharisee who is kind of like a murderer slash missionary, but he would end up writing one-third of the New Testament. And as I was praying for us today, I was just like, God, like, what do you want us to see? Because... And here's the, here's the hint. The hero of the story is not Saul. The hero of the story is Jesus, and we're going to see that. But God, like, what do you want us to see? What do you want us to, to believe today? And I felt like on Tuesday night, I was telling someone earlier, it's like on Tuesday night, I really felt like the Lord was asking for us to believe again, to believe that he can do anything. See, here's the big idea, 
And I want you to write this down. And this is kind of like the, the fluid like thought of the sermon today that everything that Jesus gets a hold of comes to life. No matter how difficult it might be, everything that Jesus gets a hold of, it comes to life. Now, Mike, that sounds cute. But if you look at my life, that doesn't seem to be the case. That doesn't seem to be the story, which is why as we're reading this, I'm going to have you stand up in just a second. I want to move this sermon through two lenses. Number one is this is the lens where you've been believing for someone else. You've been believing for a spouse. You've been believing for a mom. You've been believing for children. You've been believing for a coworker, And it seems like um, you're at the end of your ropes. It seems like that, like, man, I know God is good. I know God can save everyone, but not this person. I want you to believe again. Maybe you're dealing with a financial crisis. I want you to believe again. Maybe you're dealing with a bad diagnosis like cancer. I want you to believe again. That's number one. But number two, the other lens that I want us moving through is you personally. See, I know what it's like to grow up in the church and to have this idea of who God is, but not really actually have a relationship with God. Maybe in here you've been trying. You've been trying in your own power. You've been trying in your own energy. And right now you're like, man, Mike, I don't know what else to do. I come to church. I try to be a good person. I have no clue what to do. I am it. Like, listen, I'm hoping today that you would believe again. Amen? Amen. Stand up with me. Acts chapter 9. Looking at Saul, Saul's story. Starting in verse 1. And it goes like this. It says, but Saul still breathing threats and murders against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him to, to send letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? Who are you, Lord, we're going to touch on that in just a second. And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but rise and enter the city and you will be told what to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voices, but seeing no one. Skip down to verse 10. It says, now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. Skipping down again to verse 15, and it says, But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. The title of this message is God Can Do Anything. Let's pray. Jesus, Lord, would you help me in the next few moments? Would you open up our hearts? Would you put away our doubts? Would you move past those? And may we see the beauty of the gospel today in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. amen. High five your neighbor and say, let's do this. Let's do this. God can do 
Talk with me. God can do. Come on now. Y'all sound great. Come on. Like a beautiful chorus. God can do anything. We see in scripture that God turns water into wine. We see in scripture that he takes five loaves and two fishes and he creates enough fish for both Juneteenth and July 4th. We see, we see Jesus bring sight to the blind. We see Jesus heal the person that was a paraplegic. We see Jesus restore the woman who was in adultery. Like we see all these different things. See, we know that God can do anything, but do we believe that God can do anything? See, the tragedy this morning that we're all facing is our belief. And this is what I feel like God is causing us to rise up this morning. See, I love that, like, in the vantage point of Saul, Saul has this moment in 1 Timothy 1.15. He has this moment that every time he tells his story, he always has two things that he walks through. He has the, the patterns of his past, and he talks about the patterns of the gospel, the patterns of his past and the patterns of the gospel. What I need you knowing is that you have patterns of your past and you have patterns of the gospel. See, in 1 Timothy, he says, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Let me say that again. Christ Jesus came into the world to save who? Sinners. Of whom I am the foremost. What Saul is saying at this moment is like, hey, listen, I know that you think you're a sinner. I am the sinners of sinners. I know you think you're bad, but I'm bad. This is his thing. He talks about the patterns of his past, but then check out what he does. He says, but I receive mercy for this reason that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. The reason why we're reading this story, a lens that Paul is trying to get us to see is that through his story, you might, it might serve as an example of the perfect patience that Jesus has laid out for you. See, everywhere he told his story, there was this pattern, the pattern of the past, the pattern of the gospel. And this is where I want to carry this sermon this morning, because point number one, when it comes to our past, I need you knowing that our past is a hard pattern to break. Your past is a hard pattern to break. Every time I go back to Jacksonville, um, <laughs> I'm reminded of my past. I get around, my, I get around my, my family. I remember when I was dating my wife, we couldn't be in the kitchen for 10 minutes. And then next thing you know, with my wife or my girlfriend at the time, they're like, hey, man, I know he seems great now, but you should have seen him. <laughs> Anybody family do that to you? Man, you should have seen Mike Mike. That was my nickname, Mike Mike. You know, I, you should have, man, Mike Mike was bad. I go to my, my church family because I'm a pastor's kid. I get around my pastor's kids, you know, I get around my, my, my church family, and they look back at me and say, man, you should have seen Mike back when he was in the daycare. He was bad. I ain't going to lie. It was a little terrible. I remember uh, fifth grade, I was, I, was, I was in the choir. I'll be a little honest with you guys. I was in the choir. And uh, we were singing, um, you know, because every fourth Sunday, I went to a missionary Baptist church. Um, and every fourth Sunday was youth Sunday. And so, you know, what do PKs do? They sing in the choir. And so I'm singing in the choir, and we were singing Kurt Franklin's um, Lean On Me. Like, anybody ever heard that song before? You know, right? Beautiful song, right? Except, like, in the second verse, it's like, 
if you, if you say the words too fast, it like, it says something else. And so in the second verse, it was like, you know, and there, there's child, you know, everyone always, who is sick and begging to be free, but there is no cure for his disease. He looks up to his mother. And the real words is, as she holds. But what we did in our little fifth grade minds is combined it and said, as she If you ask my teachers, I went to four different elementary schools, three different middle schools. I'm not going to tell you I was kicked out of all of them, but you get the picture. You know, I somehow had to. But I remember at my senior class um, graduation, I had straightened up and I thought I was, you know, doing good. I was graduating number five in my class. I was the senior class president. I was the RTC commanding officer. I had all these different things. And I'm at the at this graduation ceremony, getting accepted to UF with a scholarship. And I'm thinking everything is great. And all of a sudden, this tall lady starts walking in my direction. And she's tearing me, like just bawling. And I was like, excuse me. She's like, hey. It's like, do you know who I am? I'm like, no, I don't. She says, I'm your third grade teacher, Miss Little. And I'm like, well, you're a little big to be little. But either way. And with tears strolling down her eyes, the first thing she says is she looks at me. She says, Mike, I thought you were going to be in jail. I was like, wow. <laughs> in some ways, she was saying, you are bad. See, see, the past is a hard pattern to break, especially when there's so much on the line. See, as we look at this text, we see... In chapter 8, that Saul enters, and what Luke describes is that he's coming in and he's ravaging the church. He's entering house after house, and he's dragging off men and women and, uh, to prison or even death. And Luke even says in chapter 9 that Saul is so committed to being the answer to this problem, which we're going to touch in just a second, the answer to this problem, that it became like the air he breathed. Saul was so invested in doing this in the name of God, he was so invested to being the answer to his problem that it became like the, the air he breathed in and out. He was breathing out persecution. Here's the warning for us. When we talk about patterns of our past, one thing I need us knowing is that you and I are never going to break the patterns of our past as long as we are the answer to our problems. See, see the, the, the tragedy is Saul is trying to be the answer, the, the on behalf of God, here I am. But listen, as long as you are trying to be the answer to your problems, it will not work. See, this is not just a now problem. This is ever since the beginning. In Genesis 3, we see this moment where humanity was with God and then all of a sudden it gets separated because of sin. There's big void because of sin. What does humanity try and do in the example of Adam and Eve? They hide away. They cover their nakedness. They're trying to be the answer to their problem. But God comes around in the cool of the day and says, hey, why are you naked? See, whenever we try to do it, it just does not work. See, it's not even just sin. It's, it's this pride of sin that rises up. I love how Proverbs 11, 2, it says that pride leads to disgrace. See, pride has a way of keeping us in a prison that brings about anger and hurt and foolishness while keeping at bay the restorative effects of a conviction, humility, and reconciliation. See, pride has a way of saying, you know what, I could do bad by myself, 
But humility is the thing that brings this in. See, in other words, what you and I are doing, what Saul's pride and what our pride has an ability to do, it has an ability to launch us into the seat of rescuer and God made in our image. And the only way to undo that God is to tear down the God that we have constructed. The only way to actually break free from our past is to undo this God of self that we have constructed because we are not the answers to our problem. I like how Tim Keller says this. He says, when we get to the bottom of it, if the God you have constructed is you, then the God that you have constructed won't be able to convert you. This God won't be able to save you. This God won't be able to transform you. He can't even break the patterns of your past because unfortunately he is not bigger than your heart. If the God is you, he is, he is not bigger than your heart. He is not bigger than your desires. Some of you are wondering, like, man, why do I find myself going around and around? It's because this God you constructed to save you is not bigger than your desires. See, what gods have you constructed? If you look at your life, what gods have you put in motion? Have you constructed the the God of moralism and, and legalism because some of us, we built this belief with God that if I just work really hard, if I come to church, if I do the right things, if I sing, if I participate, if I volunteer, that someday is going to be enough, is going to be enough to stand before a holy God. But listen, the moment you get to heaven and you see the, the nail prints in his hands, you know that your God is not going to stand I mean, I love how in this passage, Paul doesn't call them Christians because that wasn't really their name that moment. They call them followers of the way. Followers of the way. It was almost as if they were saying, hey, beyond legalism, beyond morality, they had found a way that was, that was better. See, people weren't running to follow Jesus because they were just simply trying to get out of hell. They were following Jesus because they found a better way. They found the person. They found the one that they could put their hope in. See, they weren't looking for legalism and morality, but they were looking through the lens of grace and the Holy Spirit at work. Amen? See, as long as you are the answer to your problem, it will not work. Maybe you've constructed the God of vengeance. I'm going to do this in the name of God. and Man, I'm so mad. Man, Christianity needs to take a stand. And we find ourselves hating our neighbors. Man, please be careful because we see this with Saul. Dangerous, dangerous alarm should be ringing off when we find that people know us more about what we're against than what we're for. Man, Jesus was always persuaded by what he was for. See, there's something in us that as we are as Christians, college students, that you're getting ready to start, please don't be the person that's just out there just screaming about what you're against. Live a life that demands an explanation so that when people see the way you live, they want to come in. You've invited them to something that is like, man, worthwhile, that is worth giving. Maybe it's not vengeance. Maybe that you built a God who is limited. Now, we don't do this on purpose. We want God to be everything, but maybe you've lived a life where time and time and time again, God has disappointed you. 
You've seen God respond for other people, but when it comes to your life, God is just very limited. And so you built this worldview or this biblical view and it's shaped that God is, he just can't do it all. It's like, man, God, I, I tried to, I tried to ask for your help when it came to my mom, and I tried to help ask for your help when it came for the sickness, and I tried to ask for your help when it came to my school, but you didn't come through. And so, therefore, God, you're not as almighty as the Bible makes it seem. Please be careful. See, everything Jesus gets a hold of comes to life. See, patterns, they may be hard to break, but Jesus is a pattern breaker. See, see, maybe you believed about this, this about yourself. Maybe this is something that you believed about your loved ones, your friends. But listen, when I look back over my life over and over again, I see that God is breaking these patterns, patterns of my past with pornography, patterns of my past with rage, patterns of drunkenness, patterns of people's approval. He's done it, but not even just in my life. If you look around, if you ask people in your microchurch, if you get together with college and you say, hey, what is going on? How has God delivered? If you get around with your family that, that love God, you're going to hear that, man, God has healed patterns of infidelity. I know friends that, man, where infidelity had its root in their marriage and they thought it would never be the same, but then they invited the Lord in and God restored their marriage. Listen, if you're in here and it seems impossible, God can restore it. I've seen God break patterns of depression, patterns of suicidal thoughts, patterns of barrenness. I've seen countless couples come and say, hey, I've tried every other thing. I've tried to be the answer for every other solution like to this problem. God, would you help me? And God answer them. Like I've seen God grant that with barrenness. I've seen God grant patterns of drug abuse, patterns of sickness. I've even watched God grant patterns of tremendous loss. Loss is going to happen. Jesus says, in this world, you're going to face trials of many kinds, but take heart for I've overcome the world. James talks about this testing of your faith. When trials come right, trials are going to happen. I've watched people come back on the other side of the trial. Like even like my doggone neighbor in Tampa. I was getting ready to um, go out and we were hanging out a little bit and talking or whatever. And I was learning a little bit of a story, but I didn't really know the full thing. On Father's Day, as I'm posting to the world, like, hey, I got a, got a son. I go to his profile and he's mourning the loss of his son. I, I had no clue. Three beautiful girls, wonderful wife, wonderful life, godly man, and here in the post, he's like, man, I'll, I'll never be able to hug my son again. Now, I don't, I don't know the full story, but I remember him like just kind of detailing out how hard it was for him and his family during his time, how hard it was for his wife, how hard it was for his kids, how hard it was uh, for him to really kind of like think about the next day. Depression was seeping in, but then he has this pivotal moment where he says, but the goodness of God and the land of the living. See, I don't know where you feel you are at with this, this journey, but I got to let you know there is another side to this. Somehow, it comes in beautiful fashion when we're able to deconstruct the gods that we have built. You are not the answer to your biggest problem. See, ever since the garden, we have believed a lie that we are humanity's answer to our biggest problem, the sin issue, but that's just not the case. And this is why we get in cycles over and over and over again. See, if, 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 if there's anything I want you knowing is that everything that, that gets to Jesus has the chance to come to life. God can do anything.
See, point number one, the past is a hard pattern to break. But point number two, the gospel demolishes patterns. And it liberates the soul. You're like, man, Mike, I, I don't know what to do. I, I get that you're saying the answer. Like, listen, you're not the answer. But listen, there's one person that can demolish your patterns, and it's Jesus. See, the hero of this story is not Saul. It's Jesus. Check this out. In Acts 9, 3 through 6, it says, Now, when he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? Check this out. He knew it was the Lord, but it was unlike the God he constructed. He knew it was the Lord. He, he, he knew it. But it wasn't like the one he was building. And he said, here I am. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, but rise and into the city, and you will be told what to do. Crazy moment. On the road, and this should be good news for all of us. On the road to Damascus. Let me say it another way. On the road to Saul being the answer to his problem, Jesus comes. On the road to Saul trying to figure out this whole thing of how to get rid of Christians, Jesus responds. I don't know where you're at. Maybe you feel like you're on this road and you feel like, man, I, I just don't know. I should turn back. Listen, on this road, Jesus has the opportunity to meet you right where you are at. Amen? See, here it is, Saul having this head-on collision with a God that he did not construct, a God who has his own reality, a God who is actually there. And this is the first words, who are you, Lord? See, who's the hero is not Saul, it's, it's Jesus. So check this out. The, the passage that we're reading right now is less about Saul's ability to get to God and more about God's unyielding grace and mercy making its way over to him. It's not about Saul. It's not about what Saul did. It's like, oh, but Saul chose the road. Listen, it's not about what Saul did. It's about how God responded. See, this is our story. See, this is the gospel that Jesus Christ is the son of God, the, the savior of the world who liberates and restores. See, I don't know what God you have constructed, but the God of the Bible hears his thing. God is the great initiator. We are the responders. The beautiful part of the gospel is that it's nothing that we can earn is fully the grace and the mercy of God. But God being full, of, full in mercy because of the great love for which he had loved us while we were still in sin, Christ would die, Right? Nothing that you can earn. While you were still sinners, Christ died. There's nothing that you can earn. There's nothing that you can put to the table. There's no amount of track record that you can put before God and say, oh, that's cute, right? It's all God. See, God is the great initiator because he loved us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish. But what? Have everlasting life. The wages of our sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus. See, this is, this is the story. This is Saul's story, but this is, this is our story. God is the great initiator. We are the responders. It's funny because, <laughs> and this is why I need you believing, because in Saul's picture, 
No one was going to be able to tell a compelling story <laughs> that was going to be able to transform Saul from the inside out. Now, Stephen did it. Stephen got him thinking, but it was only, it was only the Lord. The, the cool thing for us is that for some of us, even in our life, it's only going to be the Lord. I know you're working and you're, 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 you're making moments to be able to preach the gospel, and I love that. And you're, it's almost like chains, you know, like each time you're adding in a link. But sometimes you just got to believe. You got to keep doing what you're doing, but you got to say, God, I'm going to let you handle it. So many friends of different faiths would detail out their testimony story and meet a Christian, share the story, go back and forth, but it wasn't until they had a dream that they would see Jesus appearing. It's so many stories where you see brave men and brave women risking their life, but it wasn't until God would reveal himself in a unique way. God needs us going. He needs us being like an Ananias, but I also want you as Ananias relying and remember the God that reveals and restores. I do want to just say this. Verse 7, it says that the men who were traveling with him were speechless. And this is, this is key because I think the reason why people construct God's in, in their image hoping to save them is because sometimes as Christians, we can be so judgmental. Sometimes we... We see friends and family that are far away from God and they come into this space and the only ones that actually get it, the only ones that are actually put on the evangelist hat are the ones that are bringing the people. But everyone else is so easy for Christians to just be so judgmental, to look at their flaws and point it out, to be like, oh man, you're, you're, you're this way or, or, or you're that way or you believe this thing or you're in this relationship or you're that. Listen, there is a need for that. There's a cost for that. But listen, can we just allow people to just belong? One of the tenets that I love about our church is that we want to create environments where people can belong before they believe and believe before they behave. I'm telling you, like, it's not even just something that I'm saying is a part of my journey. This is, this is my story. Like, when I was jacked up, partying, in relationships, I came to this place and I belonged. I remember seeing people that I was in my freshman year when we were partying, and the next thing you know, sophomore year, they disappeared. And I was like, yo, where they at? And I come to Greenhouse, like, oh, why you ain't tell me? <laughs> you know? And they never judged, they just, they just jumped in with me. And what I didn't know is that they had a whole community of people praying for me. But they allowed me to belong, they loved on me. And then one day I would believe and then one day I would behave. Please, don't be surprised if someone that is not a Christian doesn't have the same standards as you. Can, can we just be honest? It's like, oh my gosh, I can't believe such and such is doing that. Like, listen, they haven't been redeemed yet. I remember my story when I first started following Jesus. I gave my life to Jesus at a prayer night. And, and the only reason I went was because there was a girl that was cute, you know, and she happened to be my wife, at, you know, now with a baby, you know, so it worked. Um, <laughs> and I remember just watching these college students just going after it. They're just, they were just following after Jesus wholeheartedly. I'd never seen it before. I mean, I grew up in a church where, there were just a lot of old people that followed God, but the young people would just sit in the back and did our thing. Is anybody feeling me? Does anyone know what I'm talking about, right? Yeah. And so I was like, man, you know, I'm just going to coast through my college years. I'm just going to do my thing, you know, and then one day when I get married, I'm going to do the whole religious thing, go to daycare, go to church, all this stuff, and, and we'll do the relationship with God. But right now, I want to have fun. 
Freshmen, don't do that. <laughs> but I'm in this group, and I'm watching these guys passionately follow Jesus. And it got to this place where I was contemplating my relationship with God. And I was thinking about the way they loved me into this community, and they didn't judge me, and they were there for me, and they picked me up, and they did all these different things. And I remember watching the passion that these college students worship with, and I was like, man, God, I want that too. And I remember in this Friday night on September 19th, I ended up getting on my knees and saying, Jesus, I want to follow you for the rest of my life. It was the most beautiful thing, but it wasn't something that I was judged into. It was something that I, at some point I saw the light. I saw that I wasn't the answer to my problem anymore. Yeah. What's funny is uh, after that, you know, I tell everyone, I was like, hey, I want to dedicate my life to the Lord. And everyone's like, aside, and it's like, great. And then they were like, hey, we're going to go downtown and we're going to evangelize. I was like, me? <laughs> and they're like, yeah, man, Mike, just tell your story. Tell what God did, you know? And so we go downtown, and the leader at the time always carries a guitar. It's weird, you know? Even after following Jesus at that moment, it was a little weird. But we just go downtown, and we just sing worship songs, and we pass clubs and stuff like that. I got really scared because what they didn't know is that my past was literally yesterday in the clubs downtown and so I'm downtown, and we're, like, evangelizing, and the, the club bouncers, they're the same. Like, the promoters, they're the same. They're there Thursday through Saturday. And so I'm coming out, and I'm, you know, I'm with the people, and I'm like, kumbaya, my lord. I'm just, it's not kumbaya. That'd be crazy, right? <laughs> Da-da-da-da, oh, baby. Let my, no, I'm just joking. Um, but I'm walking downtown, and they say, you know, as I'm singing, they're like, oh, snap, Mike. What up, boy? He's like, man, you don't got to wait in line. Come on. I'm like, shh. Like, it's like, yeah, man, come on, man. I was like, I am a C. I am a CH. <laughs> I've been redeemed. Right? How do, you, how do you say that in that moment when yesterday you were one way and today you were different, right? You can try and tell it out, but they're just going to think you're weird, and it's okay, right? There are a lot of things that we do as Christians that are weird. Can we just say that? Right? Right? Until you've seen the light. There are a lot of things that followers of the way did, and the way they lived their life, they're like, oh my gosh, how could they actually follow this rabbi? This rabbi, he's died, he hasn't raised again. I don't know what you're talking about, that stuff is not real, until Saul sees the light. See, even for me as college students, I'm like <laughs> looking here, it's like, man, college students, I got up on Sundays, like, who does that, right? <laughs> That's weird. Stop having sex. All of a sudden, I was like, man, I'm going to save myself from marriage. That, that's, that's weird to the outside world. It's like, why? When you have a desire, go, go after it. Our whole world teaches when, when you have desires to chase your desires in the moment, right? I started making time to read my Bible. When I first started following Jesus, I had my Bible in my backpack, in my journal. And I remember riding bus 34 uh, from Campus Lodge to school every day and I would just take out my Bible and I would read it. And I would take out my journal and I would journal. And people around me was like, yo, what in the world are you doing? That's, that's weird. But it's, it's only weird until you've seen the light. It wasn't like I was looking at it and was like, man, listen, you are so bad for reading Harry Potter right now. <laughs> Come and read the Bible. Like, no, no, like, yo, it's okay. It's, it's weird that I give and I trust my finances to a God that they would say it doesn't exist. Like, who gives 10% or over 10% of their income to 
this imaginary business. It's, all you're going to do is stuff the, stuff the pockets of the, of the pastors, but they don't know that even as a church here, we, we give about 50% of everything that comes, like, that we spend back out to go impact the world. They don't see that. It's weird unless you've seen the light. See, here's the, here's the damage. And I just want to warn us just for a second because when we try and we expect people to fix the outside without inward transformation, all they are doing is constructing new gods. If you try to just say, hey, fix it, work on the outside, conform to this way without working on the inside, all they are doing is, is adding new material to construct new gods. See, what we want is we don't want just someone that looks the part on the outside. We want someone that is transformed on the inside. See, when we look at the early church in the face of persecution, when everyone is scattering still, when they repulse what comes out, the goodness of God. See, this is what I want. But here's the thing. You are not the answer. The gospel demolishes patterns. But the secret to transformation and the way we really demolish patterns is not effort. But number three is getting exposed to the light. And bands, you can come up now because if there's anything that's so remarkable about this, this passage, it's not, it's not Saul, it's, it's the one who was revealed in the light and his name is Jesus. It always deals with Jesus. It starts with Jesus, it ends with Jesus. Jesus is the answer. See, 2 Corinthians 3, 14, 3, 18, it says, but their minds were dull. For to this day, the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. It has not been removed because only in Christ is it taken away. Even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now, the Lord is the spirit. And where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the spirit. Here's the thing. Here's the, the biggest thing that I need you guys to know. Every time, every time one of our lives, everything that gets a hold of Jesus, it comes out different. Like everyone that beholds Jesus is changed. See, the key is not trying so hard. The key is gazing at God. The key is not trying to be the answer to your solution. The key is realizing that the solution is Jesus. The key is not working up the muster to, to learn as many Christian songs and verses as possible because you want to stand before your friends and be really great because pride enters in. The challenge, the key is humbling yourself and saying, Jesus, I cannot do this on my own. See, the vantage point that Saul has he has the light, the light, the mercy of God, that as he was on his way to be the answer, God reveals himself as the answer. Jesus is good, isn't he? Let me end it like this. Verse 8. It says, Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. And so they led them by the hand and brought him into Damascus. 
And in verse 9, it says, and for three days he was without sight. And he neither ate nor drank. As I was looking at this passage, I was just like, man, that's just, that's kind of like one of the feelings. It's not like a, the meat of it. But then I kept thinking about this darkness, this darkness, this darkness, this darkness. And I thought about what he saw before the darkness. Can you imagine this? You're on your way. You're on this road. And you're trying to be the answer to your solution. You're trying to make things happen in your power because you constructed this God that you think is going to save you, but it's not. All of a sudden, when you think you're headed in the direction where it's going to give you your, your best reward, all of a sudden a light comes and Jesus is revealed. Jesus speaks to you and then boom, darkness, nothing. You neither eat nor drink for three days. It, it sounds crazy until you realize that even though it went dark for Saul, the beholding continued for the next three days. Can you imagine this with Saul? Like darkness, like glory of God, darkness. And for three days, all he could think about, contemplate about, is the light and the glory of Jesus. See, I, I love this because for a lot of us, we come to church and we hear a message. But then we go out and we hear other noises. Some of you, you're dealing with a loved one that is sick and you come in and you believe again, but then you go back out to the doctors and the doctors are giving you a bad report and you just stop believing. Some of you, you come in and you feel like, man, I can, I can trust Jesus for my addiction, but then you go out and you hear the other voices and you hear the other testimonies and you fall back into the trap. You come in here and you, you hear the stories about reconciliation and you're believing again for your marriage, but then you go back out and you talk to your homeboy that's just filling you with all types of junk. Oh man, you should, just, you should just get out of this now. What if the key to transformation was not just quickly beholding, but it's beholding in a way where the outside distractions, the outside noises, the outside voices, they, they, they bow in our minds. So there's this cool moment with Paul where all he got was the glory of God. It was just you alone. It was just you. No other distractions. It was just you. I'm just thinking about the light. It's just you. And I couldn't even just help but think about Paul's like journey because this is like speculation, but Paul being an expert teacher in the law, I, I, I'm sure he's starting to connect all these dots and how they work together. And I bet one of the things he was thinking about is like, because Saul is a Pharisee, he, he rejected the idea that Jesus was the Messiah. Why? Because the Messiah would be blessed by God in his view, right? And yet he sees him on a tree forsaken. The Messiah doesn't get forsaken by God. Like that doesn't make sense. And yet, in this moment, I can imagine as, as Saul is in this darkness, he realizes that, man, is it possible that he could be the Messiah? Because, wait, wait, wait for a minute. Like Jesus, he was raised from the dead. I saw him. And that would mean that if I see him, that means that he's vindicated. That means that he didn't just die for his sins. He had to die for someone else's sins. If he's on a Messiah, if he's the Messiah, it means that on the cross, when he was cursed and abandoned, it wasn't for himself, it was for someone else. 
for our sins. And suddenly I can imagine Saul going back to the Bible. And I know a lot of times, like for us, like we might not know everything here, but I can imagine him going back to the Bible and he's making all these kinds of connections that he never saw before in the darkness. He's like, man, wait a minute. In Isaiah, in the beginning of Isaiah, it talks about a great and mighty king. But at the end of Isaiah, it talks about this suffering servant. They can't be the same, right? But Jesus, he was both mighty and suffering. I can imagine like him thinking about the animal sacrifice that for centuries they've been putting together systems to, of sacrifices to atone for our sin that for decades and, and centuries they've been spilling blood for animals of bulls and goats and little lambs on, on Passover. And I bet in this moment it's thinking crazy like, oh my gosh, how could dead animals atone for our sin? That doesn't make sense, God, unless it's pointing to something. Jesus. Amen. Jeremiah and Ezekiel. They have this vision where they say one day God would pour out his spirit on all flesh and they would be directly to his people and they would know me face to face like Moses and I met together. How could sinful humans be in relationship with God? There was this separation. How does God deal with the separation? Jesus. Last thing, Jesus, and this is what a lot of theologians think that got Stephen killed because... Jesus, Stephen will refer to Jesus' words where he says in three days this temple would be destroyed. And I bet Saul was just like, oh my gosh, like that's all of our stock. I mean, all of our stock is in this. What type of Messiah would want to come in to destroy a temple? Unless what he was saying is that when he dies, when the Savior of the world dies, he would be the temple of God, and three days later, he would be destroyed, but he would rise again. Jesus would say, you would no longer, no longer need, need for a human temple because I'm your temple. You would no longer need a place to sacrifice for your sins because I have sacrificed for your sins once and for all. You would no longer need a priest to go between you and God because I'm your high priest. That I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. See, today Jesus, he's not just the answer then in Saul's life. He's the answer for us today. The same grace that sustains Paul is the same grace that sustains us. The same way that Jesus was willing to forgive a murderer of Christians that were working to stop the move of God in that day, even though it couldn't be stopped, Jesus is willing to forgive you. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this sermon, be sure to click that like button. It helps others to find our videos. You can also post a comment about your favorite part of the message. Another way to connect is by subscribing to our YouTube channel. I hope your week is wonderful. Live green.